All right, I'd like to welcome you today to Romans survey class number nine. Of course, that means we are in chapter nine. We'll begin reading in verse number one. We'll read the whole chapter just to get you familiarized with the, with the scripture, with the, with the context of each chapter, and we'll make very little comment. We'll make some comments, but very little. Again, ju- these survey classes are just to get you familiar with the scripture and the very basics of the scripture. Okay, beginning Romans chapter 9, verse number 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now I'll stop right there in verse 4 and back up, because this gives us a great concept. This gives us a great insight into Paul's uh, ideas about what a good zeal and what a good burden should be for your brethren. Now this are his, this are, these are his brethren, the nation of Israel. Verse 4, who are Israelites. And he goes on with some things we'll cover in a minute. But he says, I could wish that myself were accursed. Well, verse 2, he said he said he had great heaviness. In verse 2, he said he had great uh, heaviness and continual sorrow. So great heaviness, continual sorrow in my heart. These things are on top of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which is love and joy and peace. So besides love and joy and peace, he also had great heaviness. And so the Christian life is never one side. It's never all hard. It's never all easy. It's never all joy. It's never all sorrow. But you can have joy and sorrow. And Paul has given us an insight into the heart and mind of a of a good Christian. And if, if you couldn't say that Paul was an example of a good, good Christian, then you don't have any examples of a good Christian. And so he says, I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. He said, the point to which I want to get Israelites saved is that I could separate myself from Christ. Now you can look at that either way. When he says, I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You could look look at that as saying, I would be willing to get lost again if, if, if it would result in them getting saved. Or you could look at it from the standpoint of not losing his salvation, but you could look at it from the standpoint of he would be willing to to get out of fellowship, to be a curse from Christ. In other words, there are things that you can do that will separate between you and your God to the point where he won't hear your prayers. That's very scriptural. And so Paul could be saying in this passage that he would wish that he were accursed to the sense that his fellowship was separated from God if these Israelites could get in and get themselves straightened out. So you could look at it either way. And I would, if you use that either way, I would believe it. So, and have believed it for a long time that that, that thing applies both ways or could apply either way. I wouldn't have a problem with either one. So, but the point that's trying to be made here is uh, is not necessarily a doctrinal point but a viewpoint from within a man's own heart uh, to describe what a true burden is for others. Some would say they had a burden for souls but never witnessed. Well, if you had a great heaviness and continual sorrow and you were willing to trade places places with the person being cut off from Christ, 
that would that to me would be the the primary and best example of a true burden that you could find and it's given right here in Romans chapter 9. So let's pick up in verse 4 again. Uh, the end portion of verse 3, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption. You'll find that again Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 1, that adoption. It belongs to Israelites originally. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. See, we as Gentiles, we're led in on it because of their unbelief. But these, these promises that we enjoy today originally belong to Israel. And there is a lot of speculation and a lot of teaching in the, in the church age, in the church, I should say, as a whole about stealing promises that were made to Israel and applying promises that were made directly to Israel. And there are some cases like that, promises that were made directly to Israel that you probably couldn't apply to yourself. Uh, for example, the, the, the nationality, the nationhood of Israel depended upon their, uh, their good works and depended upon their faithfulness and the, depo- depended upon their lack of idolatry, depend about a lot of things. But that's talking about their, their sustainability of their nation. Beyond that promise, there is a promise of God that they would never stop being a nation. But you can see by their actions and activities, they were driven out of that physical nation. They were driven out of the land of Israel. But having stopped being a nation of Israel, they never have. They were a nation before they came into the promised land. They were a nation after they were driven out. So there's all kinds of promises like that. Some people would apply to themselves to the point of being uh, replacement theologians that the church replaced Israel um, completely and totally and that there is no uh, nation of Israel in God's sight that's all been done away with, but that's that's not true at all. And But what we do need to realize is that many of the promises that God promised in Christ, uh, such things as glory, adoption, covenants, the service of God, these things were given to Israel themselves, but were brought over and given to the church because of their belief, taken away uh, for a time because of their uh, because of their the Israelites' unbelief and given to uh, the Gentiles because of their belief. And, of course, Romans deals with that for the next couple of chapters. So we'll move on through that again. Very, we're supposed to have very minimal comment, and I think I overdid it a little bit there. But that's just a basic outlook of what is, what's being said here in chapter 9. So without delay, we'll go through the rest of the chapter there, and you should have a good understanding of what's being said. Verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath, not, hath taken none effect, For they are not all Israel which are Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So believing in the promise is very, very prominent in uh, in these ideas about who is or who is not a child of God and a child of Abraham. For this is the word of promise at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, 
For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. So answering that call is always going to be paramount. It's always going to be very prominent in deciding who is a child of God, who is a son of Abraham, who is a child of faith. Do they respond to the call or do they not respond to the call? It is not of works, but of him that calleth. So the the results has to be those who respond. That's why Romans 10 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that preacher is very prominent in that passage in Romans 10 as well. How shall they hear without a preacher? So God calls. God draws and he uses means to draw men. He uses a preacher. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses the scripture. And when men respond to that call, they repent of who they are and they call on God for their salvation. So this is very involved and we'll cover this as we're going through our Romans class. But as far as this passage is concerned, it's very important to understand what's being said here. Verse number 11, he says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. That's a parenthetical statement. So I'm going to go back to verse 10 and read it without the parentheses. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And thankfully for us, being far removed from Jacob and and uh, Esau, being far removed from that in the New Testament, God tells us that he'll have mercy on whom he will. And uh, of course, like the passage says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's very easy to formulate. He says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he says that God uh, sent his son into the world. And the Bible says uh, uh, in John chapter number 3 and verse number 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, so in that, in that scope in the New Testament, who the Lord will have compassion on is those that believe in his son, those that call upon his son, those that have uh, recognized their sinful condition and would submit themselves to the righteousness of Christ rather than their own righteousness, those people are who God will have mercy on. So the, the example or the typology of Esau and Jacob is used to delineate to magnify the new testament situation which is not the situation of jacob and esau but is the situation of a man who will believe or not believe you'll remember esau despised his birthright before he even made any of this of the uh, choices that would um cause him to do the things that we recognize in the scripture like selling his birthright before he sold it he despised it and i i'm really getting more involved than i should in this passage of scripture but this romans chapter 9 will be used by many to um, muddy the water so to speak in regards to new testament salvation so we want to spend just a little extra time but i will move on here 
at 11 minutes so far. So uh, verse number 14, so what, uh, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. So in verse 16 he says, it's not of him that willeth. Almost everybody who hears the gospel rejects it at first. You might be talking about a little kid who receives it right away, and that's, that's covered in the book of Matthew very clearly and very carefully, and other gospels as well. But a, a grown man who's set in his ways will always, almost always take his own side and will almost always try to justify himself. And so that every man starts with a, what, the, what a Calvinist would call a depraved will. But it is uh, given here that the sense is, is that uh, here and Romans chapter 10, the sense is given that that. The Lord chose the fullness of preaching and men will preach and the Holy Spirit and the scriptures will back up that preaching and empower that preaching so that God is able to convince. If uh, we talk about God's sovereignty and all the things that God, God is able to do, God is able to come up with a method that is, that is stronger and more convincing to a man than his own will. So salvation doesn't begin in the, begin in the will but it certainly does triumph over the will of God, however depraved it might be. The will of man, I should say, no matter how depraved it may or may not be. So the argument is not about the will of man, but the grace of God. All right, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, those who believe, and whom he will he hardeneth. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 10 through 12 is a good reference for that. Second Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. Them that he will harden is defined in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that because they did not have a love for the truth. They did not have a love for the truth. God will harden those people. It's not enough just to put out a dark, mysterious statement. Uh, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. It's not a mystery who he will have mercy, mercy on. And whom he will he hardeneth. It's not a mystery who he will harden. He will have mercy on those who believe, and he will harden those who do not love the truth. Verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? There is an answer to that question. Who art thou that repliest against God? An unbeliever will reply against God. So it's very, these questions that seem to have dark implications are really very easy and very simple questions to those that believe. Uh, They're simple questions to answer to those that believe. Verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And again, in in the book of uh, Timothy, you find that in a great house, 
which is a reference to God's house, there are vessels of honor and dishonor. There's vessels of dishonor in God's own house itself. So these are not concrete statements about who can be saved and who cannot be saved, except for the fact that believers can and unbelievers can't. That's as far as that goes. There's nothing about, there's nothing here about predestination. There's nothing here about those types of things at all. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, which are unbelievers? But he says, uh, what if God willing to show his wrath to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Osi, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Esaias also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, it said, The Lord of Sabaoth had left us a, a, a seed. We, should, uh, we had been as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles, which followed not after the righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith. Not because they weren't elected, or not because they weren't predestinated, but because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So there's a great passage there from verse 25 to verse 33, which really relates the same thing as the first portion of the chapter. Only it's saying there was a people who were separated and God said, which a lot of theologians like to use that when God says something, they call it a decree and call those decrees eternal decrees. Well, there was a people who God decreed, if you want to look at it from that direction, that they weren't his people. But the Lord said the defining thing that's going to change that situation is when those people who God said were not his people begin to believe on him, they will be his people. And so this idea about election and predestination that that's so heavily involved uh, when somebody normally covers this this passage in Romans nine is not a it turns out not to be a passage about predestination and election at all, but turns out to be the fact that when God sets a thing up, when unbelievers begin to believe, they're restored, and when believers turn to unbelief they're turned aside regardless of of what god's original plan for them was god's original plan for man was intact when god created adam but when he disobeyed and went astray god's decree and god's determination for him changed and so that's the same case with the with the gentile now god had set them aside and chose israel for his people 
And when his people turned aside, he turned to the Gentiles and the Gentiles believed. And so God uh, brought them in as his sons. And so that's a, it's, a great, it's a great testament to the grace of God that he would be willing to deal with those who aforetime had gone far from him and turned aside from him and to the point where God said, you're not my children. In that place, when they begin to believe, he'll say, these are my children. And what a great testament of God's grace that is. All right, we'll pick up next time in Romans chapter number 10.